Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Renewables. I'm your host, David Smart, Chief Commercial Officer at Biostar Renewables, and very excited and honored to have a legacy podcast guest back on for a second episode. We're going to talk about um, how his business has renewed and how things have changed over the course of the last couple of years since Shamik Ghosh with Trust Trace uh, was on, I believe, in season two. So if you haven't heard his first episode, go back and start there. But Shamik, thank you so much for, for coming back on the show, and it's great to see you again. Pleasure, and always a great talking to you. Awesome. Well, just for our listeners and viewers who might not have heard your first episode, give us a refresher about your background and how you ended up co-founding Trust Trace. Sure, sure. Yeah, Shamik, I'm currently based in Stockholm, originally from India. Uh, have been living in Europe for the last uh, 15, 16 years there. And my background is largely in sales and business development in IT services companies before we started Trust Trace. We started Trust Trace in 2016. Uh, when we saw a very big gap or differentiation between difference between the way production practices is followed in the developed world versus the production practices followed in the developing world, especially India, where I come from. So where in the developed world, it's norm that you do not have uh, forced labor, you do not have any kind of uh, uh, mishandling of uh, materials towards uh, chemical or water pollution. It is quite a norm in India because everybody cut is trying to cutting cut corners to make more bottom line there. And our journey started trying to bring a balance to this. So we our vision is that any value chain, any any part of the world should be fully traceable, circular, and fair. That is the end goal that we started with. And uh, yes, that it has been now almost seven years of that journey, and we could see that. Uh, uh, few of the actions that started that time is bearing fruit now there. Awesome. So you kind of touched on it there, but tell us what Trust Trace really does in sort of your, your value proposition to your customers. Yes. So we are a digital platform for product traceability and compliance data management there. And this is a change that has happened since the last time. Last time we were uh, a product traceability and a transparency platform. And now we call ourselves to be a compliance data management and I will cover that aspect also. But predominantly what we are helping is we are helping the large fashion uh, companies to take control of the supply chain, which means they know their tier one suppliers or direct suppliers, the tier two, tier three, tier four suppliers. And also they know the complete movement of materials be it organic cotton, recycled polyester, uh, responsible wool, all this kind of materials as it transforms from a single commodity to a garment at the end of the process. So we provide them the full information and using our platform, they are able to do a due diligence before placing an order on a uh, supplier. And after they have placed the order, they're also able to collect real-time evidences as it gets uh, produced in the from the supply chain 
so that they have got much better control on the supply uh, on the on the products sustainability credentials there there and this we are doing using a digital platform which is powered by ai uh, significantly so it also reduces a lot of manual activities of collecting information processing that information uh, there and also they are they can collect good quality data so that they can now analyze that data and take better proactive actions for future towards their future goals so if you are a fashion brand who wants to make a goal that a uh, in by 2025 100% of my product should be sustainable right how do you typically track it how do you take uh, decisions towards that you use uh, the trust trace platform to get core data about your supply chain there it's really interesting and it's such an important topic continues to grow in importance as companies continue to set as you sort of reference their pretty lofty sustainability goals Talk a little bit about the shift since the last time you came on the show and your sort of renewed approach. How are you shifting more towards, I guess, the brand compliance side of the business? That's right. So I think uh, by, when we started in 2017, I think we started by working with sustainability leaders. And these are people who have strong sustainability goals and that is part of their founding principles uh, there. Uh, there and these people were very very conscious that they want to have better control of the supply chain as these companies were growing in size their supply chain was becoming more complex it was moving from within country kind of a supply chain to within continent and then multi-continent kind of a, a situation for them and they could not just travel to the supplier facilities and collect this information so they were collect they were using trust trace because it was part of their founding principles and also they wanted to communicate transparently to their consumers because it was closely associated to their brand promise that we only uh, deliver sustainable fashion so it was part of that journey and they used trust trace to collect this information with the aim to transparently communicate with the consumers around 2020 what we started seeing is that we started seeing some very very large companies who are coming to us and saying that hey we would like to start this journey of traceability and when we ask them why they say that oh come on there are going to be a lot of regulations coming in so and that was the time when european union had started discussing a lot about new textile policies and and what it means that they want to what are the things that they want to uh, put uh, deeper scrutiny into etc so they were getting prepared since 2022 mid or june july kind of a time frame we saw a big shift because many of the regulations which were tabled were passed and enforced so that has put a significant amount of pressure on the fashion brands to ensure that all of their products are sustainably made so for example if i take the example of uflpa in us right uh, this law was there but significant amount of enforcement was uh, pre enforcement uh, bandwidth was provided to that law which meant that lot of brands were facing issues that many of their products were getting withheld at the ports of entry now this is a big challenge for them because uh, fashion is such a seasonal seasonal business and if your pro products get stuck in the port of entry You'll, uh, your top line and bottom line is at under a lot of stress there. 
So uh, these kind of situations triggered them to really go for a traceability platform. Uh, it is a little bit uh, sad that it took regulation for people to take action. But I think in an unregulated industry uh, like fashion and textile, which has remained unregulated for a very, very long time, I think regulations are pushing people to take immediate action. Uh, and in a, in a way, I think this is the also the voice of the citizens or the voters who are already uh, asking for sustainable fashion when they're going and buying the product, but also now they're putting it through their votes also. Sure. Okay. So take a couple steps back for us. Tell us about the UFLPA. That's an American law. What is it and and what exactly does it mean? Yeah. So uh, I will maybe give you a little bit broad picture about globally. So globally, if you look at it in, in any industry and specifically more so in the fashion industry, which typically is the cultural representation of the whole as the as the, as as the society changes uh, there so when you talk about a sustainable product you're typically talking about two main aspects of it one is the forced labor part of it effectively social due diligence that there is good working condition no forced labor no child labor mm-hmm. uh, people are paid fairly in the supply chain that is the uh, which you call social due diligence side of it the other aspect is the environmental impact part of it, which is net zero goal, biodiversity goal, water intensity, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So you will see more and more regulations currently on the forced labor side of it or the social mm-hmm. due diligence side of it. You have UFLPA in the US, you have got German uh, Supply Chain Act, you have got the Norwegian Transparency Act, uh, you have got various such acts across the globe there and then then you have the broad net zero goals where most of the countries are signing up and that gets translated into local implementation of it there Mm. this is lagging a little bit behind there uflpa is a law which is falling in the forced labor category or the social due diligence category it stands for uyghur forced labor prevention act Uh, it is to ensure that whatever product land is is consumed or lands in the U.S. does not have any exposure to the forced labor camps in other parts of the world. Okay, so it's not um, it's not specifically focused. The Uyghur. Um, it is forced. It, kind of it is especially especially focused on Uyghur, but it generally falls into the forced labor prevention okay, side okay. of it, right? Uyghur is a specific region that they are uh, pushing, but I think. A lot of the discussions have also started about well, what about other risk, high risk, forced labor, high risk zones also. Sure, so that sure, is also sure, a discussion sure. going on. But as of now, the law is very specific on Uyghur forced labor prevention. Got it. Okay. So when, now what happens, the challenge is that a large part of the volume of cotton in globally is coming from that region there already. Mm. Now, when you have cotton coming in, it can enter a brand supply chain at various levels and at for various product categories, right? So this means that they now need to know where the product is made and also now ensure that this, uh, the complete chain of custody is maintained effectively at each production node. What is the inbound? What is the uh, uh, wastage? What is the in-production? And what is the outbound material? So very detailed information is needed. 
However, I think the CBP has said, which is the Customs and Border Protection Agency has said that for now, you show a strong intention to have such kind of granular data, but still with a significant amount of checks and balances as of now, we will allow that. But it is moving towards a space in which a brand needs to have full control of the supply chain. So that is what Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act means. Now, if it forget about traceability and all that, if you want to just comply to this law, this means you first need to know as a fashion brand, need to know your direct supplier, which you generally know because you're placing an order on them unless you're going through an agent. But then you also need to know the probable supply chain tier two, tier three, tier four suppliers. And then you want to now collect the complete evidences from tier four onwards that there is no exposure to the Uyghur forced labor camps there. Very interesting. And this means that uh, you may collect this information through millions of Excel sheets and (laughs) uh, emails, but you need to present this evidence back to the CBP or the border uh, police. So then I think it becomes a challenge if you do not have in a structured manner. And when you mention things getting stopped in the ports, is that because they believe that they're in violation of this law? So they typically, as of now, I think the CBP is also ramping up the number of inspectors looking into this space. So I think as more and more inspectors are coming, people are getting a little bit more conscious. Earlier, it used to be maybe a statistical pickup, which one they want to pick kind of a thing. I don't know what is the, uh, how do they pick a particular uh, shipment, but I think they were picking up at random a lot of shipments. And then I think they were, if they were caught, or if they were not confident about it, they were withheld. Interesting. Well, it's interesting how you mentioned the environmental side is sort of lagging because just as thinking through just simply the highest level, sort of the news cycles in the United States, the forced labor component seemed to be in the news a little bit more maybe a year ago in the last year, maybe longer now, though, uh, to the other side, the sustainability um, and the environmental focus side, it seems if you just Google, I ran a Google search while you were talking there of PFAS or forever chemicals in clothing. And there must be a hundred articles just in the past month or two months uh, about this. It's something that people are starting to pay a lot of attention to, not just in clothing, but in food, which is kind of scary. Um, and everything that we touch and consume in our lives. Um, so talk a little bit about, I guess, some of the laws kind of more focused on that side, perhaps. I know we were going to talk about digital product passports, which is something that's coming soon to the EU, I think four or five years from now. Talk a little bit about those and what that means, and then perhaps some other laws that are already in place uh, in the EU or in the United States. Yeah. So in the EU, you have got a couple of these laws. One is AJAC, which actually talks not about preventing that, but you have to share the impact of the product to the consumer, which in, in an indirect manner, you have to keep on reducing your impact there. So that is the AJAC law, which is the French law uh, there. Then you have got a, a, a deforestation law that is uh, that is there or that will come in. I don't know exact when it gets enforced there. It is also dealing with rainforest deforestation, which means that you should not 
have products which has come out of either deforestation or by through deforestation if a farmland has been taken to produce more cotton or other materials kind of a thing so this is also a significant amount of impact uh, because they are targeting the largely the environmental impact the rain for uh, deforestation of the rainforest can have uh, kind of a thing there and on top of it you typically have the different uh, cops the the biodiversity cop uh, thing as well as the greenhouse gas emission cop thing and most of the fashion brands the reputable ones are signing up to the declaration that we are focused on net zero transition and goals uh, something that has happened in other industry which is expected to enter the fashion industry is called uh, cabm it is effectively carbon uh, adjustment border mechanism which is effectively and this is very prevalent in the steel industry and the aluminium industry in eu where if you are a company which is using a steel and if you are using conventional steel then you have to pay a green credit kind of a thing there mm. so this and this is expected to enter also the fashion industry in i don't know the exact timeline because it is currently in uh, discussions there but i think this is also means a significant amount of impact will come towards uh, the materials that you use to produce garments or whatever uh, materials there similar to this you have got in us you have got various laws that have started getting discussed there and broadly under the biden's uh, inflation protection act kind of a thing a lot of incentives are given to companies who are making sustainable products right uh, there but as you rightly said i think we saw a significant increase in forced labor related awareness and then it followed with a regulation and now i think as i see we see a lot of spike or a lot of information about not only climate per se but generally environment be it water and and now people are getting exposed to so much of fires and uh, climate change effects and all that i think it is setting the psyche of a lot of the people so i think we see a lot of awareness being discussed there and hopefully this will convert into some real specific regulations which will force the brands to take action it's really interesting. And so digital product passports, mm -hmm. that's coming across the EU, right? And that'll be enacted in, or I guess start to be enforced. When will they start enforcing those? 27 is for fashion there. But I think it is the way, because I think if, if you go through the new textile policy that they're largely talking about, so they mentioned this and various because eu is the is the umbrella legislation and then each country implements their own version of it each country sure. then tends to uh, implement it in different version for example ajec law which is in france for along with product footprint they wanted to have a, a, a dpp attached because through that only they will access the product footprint information there uh, there. So I think there is, while at a EU level, all products should have DPP by 2027. That is the that is not yet finalized, but most probable kind of a thing there. And then you have each country trying to do it earlier, and some countries saying that okay, we'll wait for the EU implementation date also there. Uh, but what in essence it means is that if I am a consumer, whenever I am buying a product, I should have the full story of the uh, trans complete transparency about where the product is coming from, who has made it currently. And then 
using DPP, it becomes a unique identifier for a particular product. And as it moves into the circularity side of it, be it reselling or re-commercing or reusing or later on, in fact, recycling part of it, using that digital product passport, I should be able to know how it was constructed so that I can deconstruct the product accordingly when it goes for recycling. And with re-commercing, you typically know what is the life of the product and then what care to be taken. So it is like almost having a car. And when it, when, even if it goes for secondhand sale, you typically know what is the history of services, what is the history of sure. the product, etc. there. And this idea for behind these kind of laws is take your garment seriously. Just don't buy it, use it once and throw it, right? Or if you have got an asset, Try to use it more time so that you get a better return on the investment that you are making, which is not only the money investment, but also the your personal carbon footprint or personal footprint that you're investing into that space. Sure. Is that something that's limited to garments and, and fashion or is this all the way across the spectrum? Battery, battery DPP comes into effect by 2026 and that is confirmed so that is why all the automotive companies who are not in any any battery company who is using any company which is using a battery pack of more than two kilowatt hours has to have a uh, a dpp uh, at a at a battery level so that it can be recycled within the continent eu continent Mm. there so and then fashion comes in 2027 most probably a year later uh, but that is not yet confirmed there but batteries earlier, we expect similar kind of things for electronic material, electronics also. So I presume that this DPP enforcement will be good for your business. Any regulations which is on the forced uh, or on the social due diligence or the environmental is good for us because if you are bringing any regulations which is targeting the sustainability side of it, you need a traceability platform in that company. Uh, very simply sure. because uh, I, I keep on telling this to my uh, colleagues and friends and customers is that uh, uh, if you have got a accounting system for a CFO, you have got a ERP system for a procurement or a production kind of organization, you need a traceability system for getting your sustainability up and running. And as sustainability is becoming such critical goal, you need a traceability platform because it all starts by where the product is made, who has made it, and how it has been made. And then all the other information is after that. So typically I would ask this question more toward the end of uh, the episode, but now is a fitting time. Do you see Trust Trace expanding beyond fashion? Uh, are there other you know, places in the market, given these regulations and the, frankly, the needs of these bigger brands, uh, whether they're battery manufacturers or cell phone manufacturers, do you see other opportunities to expand the business? I It's a, it's a yes. Yes, we want to expand, but I think I will also say that I wanted to expand into other industries a year back <laughs> kind of a thing. Now, uh, when and as we are getting more and more into fashion, we see it is such a dark uh, 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 the, the supply chain information. There's a lot of uh, information which is missing there. Mm-hmm. There, and now we come our 
current customers as well as many of the new prospects coming to us and saying that, hey, I want to achieve this from the traceability platform. And we are a startup or a sort of a scale up with 110 odd employees, which means that we are always trying to deliver more and more features and functionality and use cases to our current customers, right? Uh, if you ask me, yes, my intention, I think, and we, we believe that as a vertical SaaS, we will expand into other industries also. But when, I don't know. Because already we see our hands to be full with uh, fashion and uh, uh, textile. And these this industry is growing also still. Because if you look at it, it is, it is expected to grow from $1.5 trillion to almost $2 trillion by 2027. Uh, such a huge industry growing at that pace also shows that how much amount of application the soft goods industry has on the in the across the globe there. Uh, it is a significant part of the biomass or the man-made materials that is produced every year. Uh, so a lot of virgin material and now that is also transitioning towards circularity. The opportunities that we see in fashion and textiles is so high that uh, first we need to fulfill that and then expand into the other industry there. Sure. Appreciate that. Plenty of work. You got your work cut out for you, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's just take kind of a big step back and focus on why is this all really so important? Um, kind of give us the stats on single-use fashion items. I, I think some of the statistics that we've discussed and on the previous episode were really shocking. Uh, so tell us why this is really so important. So we have to understand where where the uh, the where, where all of this started. So first around early 2000 the fashion industry was significantly unregulated earlier fashion industry was setting as a industry falling under lot of local laws and norms in each of the developed countries which meant that uh, you cannot use uh, cheap labor you cannot uh, like anything to do with chemical effluent water but then broadly under the wto they got uh, status that it can be done anywhere in the world which meant that fashion industry moved from a very regulated, locally regulated industry into a unregulated industry. A lot of large companies or a lot of companies have taken advantage of that. They have grown over the years in size, but they have cut corners when it has come to things about sustainability. So in a way, it has been unfair uh, advantage given to certain large companies who have got global operations also there. Uh, which has been going around now and now the trend is getting that hey let's have the right product with with which has got the right credentials of uh, being uh, sustainably made uh, is profitable is good for everybody and then that is the gap that is uh, getting filled by uh, uh, sustainability for now there so give us some specific stats about waste in the fashion and retail fashion industry uh, that sort of highlight the problem? Yeah, let me start covering it from the environmental and social impact side of it. So if you consider fashion to be a country and if it is uh, uh, the GHG emissions will be the third third largest country, uh, third largest contributor after US and China there which is almost equivalent to 10% of the global GHG emissions is attributed to the fashion industry there, right? Yeah, <laughs> that high there. Uh, every year, 
we are producing almost 100 billion garments out of the 100 billion garments more than 90 percent which is 92 billion end up in landfills then so it's a very costly uh, uh, in terms of uh, wastage there uh, globally if you see one out of every 130 females fall victim to modern slavery and that is what i was referring to forced labor there hmm. and out in the fashion industry itself, we have got almost 50 million workers working in sweatshops in Asia. There. Wow. There. So these are very mind-numbing numbers. <laughs> uh, yeah. That shows the rampant environmental and social transgressions that is happening across the globe. So are we at least trending in the right direction? Uh, has has there been any improvement in some of those numbers and statistics or are we still only consuming more and more? So I think if you look at the recent McKinsey report, I think it says that it is still trending on the 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 not so good side there. Awareness is increasing, but I think the enforcement and the implementation is still a long way to go there. Uh, and we have to understand by the time a developed country or in many of the developed part of the world, we bring in these regulations for them to see an impact. It was easily a five to six years uh, lag is there because the supply chains are so complex that you have to tip by the time it hits a, a, a factory in Vietnam, it will take at least two to three years for them to make a just an understanding that, hey, now I have to implement renewable energy. It takes mm -hmm. one season. And then by two seasons and end of the th third season only, they actually get a, a solar power plant or a, a wind mill set up there. Do you expect to see only more and more regulation? We've obviously outlined a few laws that are either already in place or will be in place and enforced in the next several years. Do you expect to see more of that over the course of the next five years or a decade? Yes, I think so. And it is it is an irreversible trend which already started. And I think we were just counting. I think last year there were some 18 new laws across the globe on this one and on specifically on fashion, wow. which had an impact on fashion and textile industry. And this year, I think uh, it has already crossed, I think, 18 or 19 laws already and then still one more quarter to go there. Wow. There. And and, and well, one is the regulation part of it. I think we see a lot of focus coming into the enforcement part of it, like a lot of competition and market authorities across the globe are really cracking down on greenwashing uh, to an extent that now <laughs> it has become a green hushing problem that people don't want to claim any product to be called sustainable. So I think there is a, a significant uh, enforcement which is going across the globe also on this. I just want to go back to something you mentioned at the very top of the conversation about how you're using AI. That's such a buzzword right now. Everybody's talking about AI. Everybody's implementing AI strategies. Talk a little bit about what that's looked like for the company and how it's helped you grow and, um, I guess, be more sustainable. Yeah, yeah. So it has been a great, I think, with the the the, the chat GPT 3.5 and now 4, I think it has been it has been an excellent uh, uh, tech uh, stack for us because I think one of the things we have to understand in the fashion industry with such complex supply chains, you are dealing with lot of regional language documents. You are also mm -hmm. dealing with documents in multiple different formats. 
So mm. even though we were training our models in the past to understand these documents well, with uh, Chat GPT 3.5 or 4, I think we have been able to implement such uh, 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 interpretation of these documents at scale. Uh, just to give you an example, now if you just upload 15 or 80 or 200 or documents into our platform using different, uh, uh, so using the AI, we are able to read a Chinese, Vietnamese, Indian, English handwritten documents also in the platform there mm -hmm. plus the different certification board because each certification body has got multiple variations of it so it is tremendously complex task which has been made very simple using ai and we have been able to pass on this benefit to our customers there so our customers will typically need at least even uh, will we'll push the suppliers to upload this information in a certain organized manner and that creates a barrier of entry a barrier of usage now we just say that, hey, you just whatever documents you have just uploaded, we will figure it wow. out there. So it is it has led to a lot of user experience enhancements, but also the technical competency of the platform has, I would say, gone up 100x. There. Really interesting. Yeah, we deal with that a little bit in our business, procuring uh, major equipment from overseas and you know, if something gets uploaded in a, a language or they send you a document that's in a completely foreign language that you can't read. Um, so that's really interesting. I have not we had tried a document uh, last week, which was a handwritten Chinese document. And our AI engine was able to read it uh, there. So, wow. yeah, that that's is fantastic. Thank you so much for the time, Shamik. Um, I know we're recording this in the morning. Uh, I think it's, you know, late afternoon, early evening for you over in Europe. So uh, wishing you all the best for your weekend. Really appreciate you coming back on the show. It's really great to have repeat guests and to hear how things are going and how things are evolving. And it sounds like, uh, especially given the, the regulatory landscape, both in the United States and in Europe, you have your work certainly cut out for you and, and you have such an important value proposition for the fashion industry. So congratulations on that. Keep up the good work. Uh, tell our listeners and viewers how they can find you online and keep up with the good work you're doing at Trust Trace. Sure. Yeah, I think yeah, uh, we are also expanding to the US. We have at least one employee now in Seattle and we, are, we will be hiring more and more in the coming months uh, there. We see U.S. to be growing very fast for us. So I think we will have a, a significant local presence there. So hopefully we'll be able to meet in face-to-face -face sometime in future there. Uh, yeah, and, and your listeners can contact me via LinkedIn. I'm available there under Shamik Ghosh there. And they can also drop me an email. I can I can send, share the email in your show notes. Perfect. We will do that. And thank you again for coming on the show. Great to see you and enjoy your weekend. This has been another episode of Renewables. I'm your host, David Smart. So appreciative of all of our listeners and viewers who tune in week after week. Make sure to click that follow button wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks for joining. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Hello, and thank you for listening to Renewables, a podcast by Biostar, which aims to explore the current and future energy landscape in America. 